advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, everyone. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. I would like to dedicate this episode to my dog's senior dog pal, Uncle Curio, who passed the Rainbow Bridge today at the age of 18 years old. He was found abandoned as an adult dog, extremely neglected and riddled with health issues. He almost died several times over the next 15 years of his life while my friend did her best to care for him and manage the ailments that challenged him. He finally left his body to join the rest of our beloved heavenly pack today. Thank you, Curio, for making us better human beings who wanted to do right by you. My wish is for every pet parent who is trying to find a way to improve their sick animal's life will be inspired by today's episode with Daniel Orego, who will always look at a problem with fresh eyes and curiosity. Daniel Orego is a well-known and respected advocate among the fresh feeding community for his work at Keto Pet Sanctuary and contribution to the Dog Cancer Series documentary. This is part one of his story. Who is Daniel Orego, please? Wow. Okay. Uh, let me. Uh, well, let me tackle this in a way that um, might be helpful for the uh, remainder of our uh, uh, conversation. So, to just give you a little bit of history, my primary interests uh, as a as a young person were mainly focused around athletics, um, and so I played basketball, and football, and tennis, and just about uh, every sport uh, you can imagine, and uh, baseball as well. And it really wasn't until uh, high school and college that I became interested in the sciences to a deeper degree. I grew up with them uh, because my father was a uh, geneticist and microbiologist. And my original plan uh, when I was becoming educated was to follow in his footsteps in some way. I got... I got entirely derailed from that effort, um, which sort of set up uh, a subsequent process of derailments. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When I was going to college in the mid nineties, it was during the tech boom and I was in uh, San Francisco. And so I ended up working for a small technology company at the time that ended up growing very rapidly. And what I found was that I enjoyed it 
uh, it came to me quite naturally. And uh, because I was having so much fun, I went in that direction and for about the next 10 years, uh, spent my time deeply enmeshed in uh, network engineering and software development and things of that nature. And so that, you know, totally uh, captured my attention for a long period of time. And it wasn't until uh, I ended up working and living uh, in various places around the world. And it wasn't until I came back to California, now Southern California, prior to I was in the, uh, in the Bay Area, that uh, I ended up connecting with, again, a small uh, company that was in the fitness and nutrition space. But it was a very unique company insofar that while the product that they made was pretty common, protein bars, protein powders, things like that, the, uh, the internal dynamic of the company uh, was such that they really had a focus on how foods impacted metabolism and specifically how foods could be used as interventions in disease processes. And it was really from there that uh, I again sort of got derailed from the typical health and fitness career and really started focusing on cancer as a disease and metabolism uh, with an acute focus on how that played out, not just in humans, but also in dogs and, and cats. So that sort of brings us up to, uh, to current to some degree. So I first heard of you, gosh, I can't even remember how many years ago that was, but when Keto Pet Sanctuary started. Yeah. Um, what year was that? Gosh, you... that's <laughs> five or six years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I emailed, uh, I emailed you um, early on asking about the keto diet and how it, it would, you know, impact uh, cats mm -hmm. in particular, because your focus at Keto Pet at that point was cancer, um, the keto diet and dogs. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So that was my very first time reaching out to you like donkey years ago as a pet parent. Um, yeah, so well, it's, it's, it's been a while. Um, can I just ask, as a little boy, you were into athletics and nutrition and stuff. And did you like animals at that point in time? Or was it, you know? Well, very, very much so. I, I grew up around animals. So, you know, everyone in my family had a dog or a cat. Uh, as, as a little kid, I had a preference for uh, cats and salamanders uh, and turtles and things like that. So th those were the pets that I, I had. I took a, a tremendous interest in uh, fish as well. And I created all kinds of uh, aquariums, saltwater, freshwater ecosystems, uh, and took a great interest in, uh, in sea life. And, and even at one time, uh, was attracted to the idea of becoming a, uh, a marine biologist, but that, that never quite, uh, that was one of my fantasies that never, never quite played out. So you actually greatly influenced by your father in, you know. Yeah, very much so. He, he was interesting and he was interesting uh, as an individual, but, but also his work was interesting because he was part of the original team that developed the, uh, the PCR or polymerase chain reaction process. And he used that um, not only to advance scientific method, 
but also as a way to uh, offer more uh, precise and exacting forms of justice uh, in courts. So now it's today it's very common to use genetic evidence as a way to exonerate people or to convict people. Um, and he was very much part of the development of not just the technology, but the policies and procedures around that. So that intersection of, of using science um, in a, a social way was very attractive to me. Uh, and I think that's partly why I became so interested in how disease processes function in animals, because you know, it's obvious to, to yourself, to myself, to anyone who's watching this program that has a companion animal, those, those animals, those creatures become uh, indelibly affixed to the course of our lives. So anything that we can do to advance them and to help them prosper uh, and to live more fully, you know, is of interest. So what would you say, you know, is your, your passion right now? Well, obviously, uh, you know, cats and dogs are, uh, are, are you know, preeminent uh, in my life. You know, it, because of uh, COVID, uh, I've been forced to take an interest in not just that exclusively. Um, and I've also developed now a tremendous interest in um, uh, global economy and investment, and in particular, uh, how um, tax revenue is spent and metered out as part of a uh, social development programs. So that's something I've, I've taken an interest, particularly um, as connects to uh, retail trading and uh, how markets can influence uh, economic prosperity for uh, folks that you know may not have a uh, portfolio. So that's something that really within the last 18 months or so has kind of captivated my imagination and sort of captured my attention uh, as well. So would you say you're a left brain or right brain kind of person? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's a tough question to answer. And so far that, you know, the, 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 the typical convention around that is, you know, the right brain is more uh, creative and the left brain is more, is more rational. But uh, what I find is that really it's, it's the combination of those two things uh, that offer us the best, uh, the best opportunity for, you know, for thought that serves us. So dogs and cats and what's up with, you know, food and nutrition. I mean, what's your take on all this? Because, you know, within the fresh feeding community, everyone's talking about um, feeding, you know, a fresh or raw food diet versus a um, ultra processed diet, you know, um, and it's funny how after all this time, there's such a huge debate still, you know, um, but what's, what's your take on all this? Well, you know, the, here we're, we're jumping into uh, the meat of it, uh, I guess, pun, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> uh, and the way I like to think about this is to work backwards from what we can understand, what we can know, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, right? And so if we look at really both human and canine and feline nutrition from say just the last 50,000 years of evolution, we, we know with 
you know, not absolute confidence, but with very strong confidence that animal products were a primary source of food. You know, if we're focusing on dogs almost exclusively, perhaps with some exception, uh, when animals were, were not available. Um, and it's really only in, you know, say the last hundred years or so that dogs have been even able, primarily in, in developed countries, to eat something that, you know, comes out of a bag or a can. So if, if we accept that as a point of departure, then I think we can start to have a, a fairly good understanding of what probably makes sense uh, for dogs and cats, you know, cats being obligate uh, carnivores and dogs being faculty uh, carnivores. And so right there, you start to see some, some pretty stark relief between what, you know, and we'll just say, take, you know, North America, what's typically offered to dogs, which does come out of a bag or a can, and what probably makes the most sense given the last 50,000 years of evolution and what we can have, you know, we can have a pretty good idea of, of what they ate was during that period of time until very recently. So will you, what kind of um, do, like pet food feeder were you when you first started out? Um, well, as, as a child, you know, everything came out of a, a, a bag or a can um, because that was the, the level of awareness that I had, you know, as a, you know, as a pet owner or pet parent at that time. Um, it really wasn't until I started looking at the history of nutrition, not just in humans, but in animals, and seeing this stark contrast between, you know, what the majority of time uh, offered, you know, in this case, uh, dogs, uh, and what they were eating most recently. So that, that understanding, that perspective really only came to me in maybe the last seven years or so. And influenced me to contemplate, hey, you know, maybe what we're, what is typically offered to companion animals um, could be considered in a different light, given that evolutionary history. You know, they say in today's cancer is a life is more a lifestyle disease than than a genetic thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always a there's always a chance that it's a genetic reason why you got cancer but a lot of people or you know um are saying now it's like it's more a lifestyle disease is you know you getting cancer so how would that translate for dogs and, and and our companion animals sure well i mean you're zeroing in on probably the the most important thing that, that we can all focus on ourselves and, and on behalf of our uh on our pets which is you know, controlling food inputs is largely determinative, or I should say at least highly influential when it comes to disease expression. Now, obviously, that's not the only cofactor. Genetics do play a role uh, in disease expression or in, in risk uh, to acquiring disease. But, you know, food's the probably the, you know, the biggest lever that you can pull, so to speak, when it comes to administrating to your dog's uh, or cat's health. For sure, because you know, uh, you know, when you when you go to a pet store, all these bags, you see these beautiful bags on on the aisle, and the pet food manufacturers, they 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 throw words at you at saying it's organic or range uh, range free grass fed, um, 
you know, the pretty picture of a cow grazing on a pasture right. or, you know, a nice, a nice roast chicken with carrots and peas there, right. you know, yeah. and, and, and they sort of promote it as this is the healthy option, you know, and, um, you know, they, they, you know, there's always this thing about how, you know, they disagree with the fresh feeding community on uh, what is causing uh, disease in our companion animals, um, you know, because they like to use the word trials, you know, these, they, they like to use scientific papers to back up um, whatever, whatever they say. But, you know, me being as a, you know, uh, a, a pet parent starting from ground zero, knowing nothing. I used to take the word of my vet and whatever I read in the papers as the word, you know, and it's only in the last 10 years or so that I went down this rabbit hole, finding Dr. Karen Becker and Rodney Habib. <laughs> and then I started this, this, this rabbit hole of, you know, what you read, what you see is not, <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of obfuscation going on, you know, um, labeling and all that. Uh, what you read on the, the food labels is yeah. not your brain. When, you, when I think of it, you know, I will look at it from a dictionary, English word dictionary perspective, like, oh, this is what it means. Mm -hmm. And it's only, you know, reading and getting to know people like Susan Thixton, for instance, right. who's an advocate for, you know, really knowing what, people like AFCO are doing um, and, and how, how they manipulate, you know, the, the regulations and stuff. So we are being, it's like, there's a blessing in the pet food, like the pet food companies that they are allowed to mislabel products because it's legal or even if it's not legal, they can get away with it, you know? Um, and <laughs> what do you think about all that? Well, I mean, you've identified a thorny landscape, which, you know, we'll, we'll have to untangle here a little bit. Um, but, but all the issues that you're hitting on are, are critical path. Um, you know, if, if, if we go back to what we were touching on before, if we accept that, you know, evolutionarily, you know, dogs are facultative carnivores, then that for the most part uh, eliminates what is being offered in commercial pet foods. Right. In other words, if you accept that standard, then, you know, a kibble or a canned food uh, wouldn't be appropriate for a dog, particularly because it, they're not only the heat processed, um, but they are refortified. And of course, there's concerns about uh, the quality of the base products themselves, which if you've if you've read uh, Susan Thixton's work, which, which is phenomenal, she's done an amazing analysis of where the base products come from. And they're actually not food products. They're what are called feed products, which is a different classification uh, of substrate, right? And so when we think of, we hear the term dog food, we associate it with food in, in our own terms, like the food that we buy at the grocery store. Um, but that is not what's actually in, in those uh, packages. Now, that, that's not part of the, the common lexicon, unfortunately. Most, most pet, pet parents aren't aware of that. But um, it's, it's something that's, that's worth looking into. And of course, you know, Su Susan has done the, the masterwork uh, on this in terms of, of getting to a very good understanding of what those differences are. Additionally, you know, you touched on uh, labeling. What's interesting about labeling is that according to state legal standards, most of the labeling, and there are some exceptions to this, 
but most of the labeling is actually legal. And the reason for that is because the standards are not the same standards which are required for human foods. So whole uh, categories of information, for example, uh, the listing of carbohydrates are missing. So you, and oftentimes things are not presented in gram amounts, but are presented in percentages. All of these things are legal standards, which uh, most uh, pet food manufacturers adhere to, but um, they don't convey the same level of information and insight that uh, human food labeling practices do. So that's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to work through that, to, to get to an understanding um, <coughs> of what's going on. Additionally, you touched on another key point, which is really a fascinating landscape, which is uh, the scientific trials. And there's a fantastic uh, treaties uh, by Dr. Peter Tia that he has on his website called Studying Studies, which if anyone reads that, it's a primer on how to understand scientific studies. What you come to learn very quickly and in a short order is that the trials that are performed are performed at a standard of rigor that is very low. And that's not to say that they don't necessarily have good information in them. But the information that they do have oftentimes doesn't give you the answers that you might want as a pet parent. And what I mean by that is that those safety trials, when they're performed, and most of the time they're not, uh, but when they are, they're designed to show that, hey, the stuff that we're feeding the dogs doesn't kill all of them. It only kills some of them. Right, and that's what I mean by the standard of rigor is very low. They're designed to show safety and efficacy, but the, the trials don't offer any insight into, is this the appropriate or optimal food that I should be feeding my dog? Um, and so that's something that, you know, once you sort of peel back the layers of the onion on that and you start getting into it, you, uh, you really figure out that, wow, you know, what I'm learning here is really more about the methodology applied to these uh, studies than I am getting answers about what's best for my dog. Um, so those are, those are some of the things to think about for pet parents. And the great news is, is uh, uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Becker, uh, Susan Thixton, uh, Chelsea Kent, Rodney Habib, you know, these folks have done such phenomenal work in really revealing what's going on there. So there's this term that I'm not very familiar with. So what are micronutrients? Ah, okay. So you, you've got two primary class, classes of nutrients in, in any food. You've got your macronutrients. Those are your uh, carbohydrates, your fats, uh, your proteins. Some, some people like to include uh, fiber as a macronutrient. Uh, but the, the, the three primary macros are, are your fats, your, your proteins, uh, and your carbs. Micronutrients really encompass vitamins and minerals. And so there's a lot of attention given to micronutrients uh, in pet foods for, for very good reason is because when you, when you take a, a high carbohydrate uh, feed and you extrude it, which is the, the common process for creating a kibble, you apply a tremendous amount of heat to it. So oftentimes, whatever micronutrient value was present in that food substrate is gone. 
And so there's a process called refortification, which reintroduces the micronutrients back into the food because there's an understanding like, hey, if we don't do this, then over time, there, this could induce a, uh, a nutrient deficiency. And so there's a lot of focus on that. And it's challenging because the, uh, the manufacturing processes for applying these nutrients sometimes come through spraying them on, some, uh, and there's other processes. So sometimes you get too much of a nutrient, not enough of a nutrient. And then there's the larger consideration that because of labeling laws, there can be these huge variations, these huge reference ranges for what is considered sufficient uh, micronutrients. And so that really and truly has an impact on what your dog's getting. Additionally, there's not a lot of information. There's a growing body of this, uh, but there's still not, a, I would say, sufficient information of third-party testing to validate if, in fact, you know, ABC dog food that you got from your local grocery store, in fact, contains any of the nutrients that, that are identified uh, on the label, or if they do, contain them within the, the allowable reference ranges. And so oftentimes, pet parents are left in a position where they just don't have a lot of insight and understanding to make informed decisions about what it is that they're feeding their, their pets. Yeah, because, you know, we've been marketed to very well by pet food companies to, to believe that if we feed out of a bag, you know, it's a complete diet, very balanced, and they get everything in there. Whereas if, say, you were to feed a raw food or fresh food, gently cooked diet, um, you are in danger of, uh, you know, not providing enough nutrients or, you know, it's not a balanced meal. You know, what, what's your advice for pet parents who are, you know, worried about things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's no small challenge. And, and what you're speaking to is a, is a continuing concern. And, you know, it's tough because, you know, some, some pet parents really, they do their due diligence and they, you know, they call the pet food company and they say, hey, would you be so kind as to share, you know, more information? It's, it's very difficult oftentimes to get to the bottom of these things without third-party lab testing, which can, you know, be expensive um, and time-consuming and, and the results of which require some skill to uh, interpret and understand. So th this is a, an ongoing uh, issue, which, you know, hopefully, um, you know, greater consumer pressure, greater consumer advocacy can change that um, to, you know, to, to offer uh, pets a, a little bit better uh, than what it is that, that they're receiving now from those products. You know, there's this saying by Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine. Mm -hmm. um, when you were, you know, on your journey with nutrition and companion animals, you know, was there any particular case that you, that you were, you know, personally involved with where you saw this change, you know, when you had, say, a very sick dying animal that, <clears throat> say, the vet already written off as is ready to go, you know, um, did you have a particular case where you had this realization, you know, uh, this sort of light bulb moment where it 
it's food, it's nutrition that actually turns it around. Well, you know, that, that light bulb actually came on prior to, to working with any dogs, really. And it came on from uh, reading the, the research um, because that's really where these ideas started for me is they, they started in, in really going back through the scientific literature and trying to see what that body of work looked like. Um, and mostly, you know, with uh, if, if you're talking about uh, controlling metabolism as an, as an intervention against disease process in this, in this case, uh, cancer, then we had, you know, a pretty solid body of work over the last 70 years or so that showed very promising successes in both rats and humans. And there were a few cases, a few published anecdotal cases uh, for dogs. And we also saw very encouragingly that um, these interventions could be used for other disease pathologies, such as epilepsy, uh, diabetes, obesity, uh, neurodegenerative uh, compromise, cardiac disease. So the landscape was very broad. And, you know, when we got to a point where we made a commitment to begin working with dogs, it, it, it couldn't have gone uh, more optimally. And the reason I say that is because one of the big advantages of working with dogs, you know, say as opposed to, to humans, is that the dogs eat what you give them. So, you know, with people, you know, tuning a diet, tuning a nutritional program, tuning a supplementation program can be very challenging because, you know, people have the opportunity to say, you know, I, lo I love what you're talking about, but I'm going to McDonald's. <laughs> um, whereas dogs don't have that opportunity. Additionally, uh, they, their metabolisms are a little faster than, than ours. And so you very immediately see a response in dogs that takes a little longer typically um, with, uh, with people. And so whether the dog was healthy, whether the dog was sick, we saw very dramatic responses very quickly. And so that helped us to understand that what we were doing was on the right path. Mm. So what would you say are the important points for pet parents to really, you know, like when, when they're starting this whole proactive pet wellness approach for their companion, I'm say dogs and cats, for instance, um, what are the main areas that they should be focusing on? Or you mean as, as pertains to, uh, to nutrition? Yeah. Like overall as a pet parent, what should they be doing besides nutrition? Is there anything else that they should factor in? So, you know, is it good and is it good enough if I just feed a raw food diet? You know, is that it? Or do you know, do I have to to you know do other things for my pet to really optimize their health? Sure. Well, as we mentioned before, right? Nutrition is the biggest lever you can pull. Why? Because it's the thing you do every day. So you know, if, if you had to pick something to be in the number one spot, that could be it. But there are larger issues, right? In other words, just like humans, right? The, the thing that we focus on oftentimes is food, but sleep is very important and exercise is hugely important. Um, so those cofactors play a big role, in fact, play a crucial role in longevity or what is now called uh, health span, right? Not just how long you live, but how long you live in optimal health by some standard. And I think the same thing could be applied uh, to dogs, 
right? So obviously the food is very important. Yes, we check that box, but we also look at exercise. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, and, and this can happen particularly in urban areas where dogs may not receive uh, very much exercise because they're indoors frequently. And whether it's a big dog or a little dog, um, even 10 or 15 minutes a day on a treadmill can have a profound effect uh, on health. Obviously, there are, there are issues that go beyond what we can directly control uh, as pet parents when it, when it comes to uh, collaborating with our healthcare professionals or our small animal veterinary medicine uh, professionals. And, you know, obviously vaccines are a big part of that. Um, medication and pharmacology to address acute illness or injury uh, are a big part of that. Uh, and regular testing, just like for us, right? It makes a lot of sense to do, you know, blood tests, blood panels several times a year so that we can check and see if there's anything wrong or potentially something, uh, you know, a disease process might be developing. Those things are, you know, as equally fundamental to sustain health in, uh, in dogs and cats. So it's a, you know, it's what, the, it's what they call here, the whole enchilada. All of those things play a contributing role uh, to sustain health in, in dogs and cats. You know, um, there's this thing that, you know, goes around like um, question of, should we fast our dog? You know, some people, when they hear the word fast, they get very scared and they say, you know, that's like inhumane, it's cruel. Um, the human nature, you know, like how we show our love is by feeding. I come from a culture in Asia where food is, you know, yeah. where we feed you. If we don't feed you, we don't love you. You know, the one thing that in yeah. Chinese, they always say in, in Chinese, like, um, have you eaten? <laughs> you know, instead of saying, hello, how are you? The standard greeting in Chinese is, have you eaten? You know, so food in our culture is very, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And in Singapore, we love to eat. So for a lot of pet parents in Asia, the idea of number one, portion, portion control, what, what's, what's, how do you portion, what is a good, you know, what is allowed, you know, they, they, they get very scared. Like, how much should I feed my animal? The other thing is when they hear the word, oh, you should fast your animal because it helps, especially, you know, with all the studies about cancer, you know, if you fast them, it, it's helpful. And even in the human culture, we're talking about like intermittent fasting, for instance, you know, and it's a, a thing now for, for, for health and longevity. But for a lot of Asian pet parents, the idea of not feeding your pet you know, and most, you'll be surprised, like there are some parents here who think like a human, I should feed my, my dog three meals a day with snacks in between, because we eat three square meals a day, you know, that, that is, that is the norm here. So when you tell them, you know, you can feed them twice a day, or even one meal a day, it's not going to kill them. And, you know, like you can even like fast them or put them on a light fast. They, they're horrified because they think like, I'm denying my animal food. That means I'm de denying my animal love. How, how would you respond to that? Well, you know, I think a lot of this is, uh, it boils down to semantics. Um, and one of the ways I like to think about this is, you know, where can we start the conversation where we can gain the most consensus, right? And, and I, think, I think you'd be hard pressed to find people who would uh, argue against the importance 
of what we feed ourselves, what we feed our dogs. So if we start there and we say, well, okay, if we know that, that um, good nutrition is a, is a part of health span, is a part of longevity, uh, is, is a part of a, an optimal lifestyle, you know, can we also agree that, that calories matter? Most people say, yeah, you know, calories do matter. Okay. And if we can agree that calories matter, can we agree that macronutrients matter? You know, maybe not everyone's familiar with macronutrients, but you explain that and say, okay, you get some consensus there. And so at that point, really, it's about controlling those moving parts. Um, and to do that, you don't need to use terms like fasting if that, is, if, if that shakes you. Uh, or if that makes you feel like, hey, you know, I would never want to deny uh, my dog something. I don't think there's a there's a reason to do so. At the same time, to be the best parent, pet parent that you want to be, controlling what your dog eats is a benefit to them. And so it may be the case that part of that administration comes with the interval of time between meals. So mm -hmm. if I feed my dog three times a day, Maybe there's, you know, a six hour interval between meals. If I feed them twice a day, there's a 12 hour interval between meals. If I feed them once a day, there's a 24 hour uh, interval between meals. If you want to label those intervals fasts, okay, you can. Um, but that in some ways misses the larger point, which is, look, the most important thing is that you are the the boss if you will the administrator of your dog's health and in caring for your companion animal ensuring that they are receiving the correct calories the correct distribution of macronutrients at the correct intervals is your job and the great news is is there's any number of ways that one can elect to do that not just effectively but to do so in a way that optimizes that dog or that cat's experience so I think, you know, how we have these conversations can make a difference and it can also help people who might not otherwise be inclined to do that because they look at food as a form of love and treats are as enjoyable for them as it is, uh, it is for the dog to get them to a place where they can perform that duty of caring for their dog's health in a more effective way. Hmm. You know, historically, at like compared like dogs and cats, they were never considered pets like for the longest time. Yeah. I think in 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 Asia especially, um, but historically as well. I mean, dogs and cats were considered working animals. Like mm -hmm. the the dog function was a working dog. Say if you were in agricultural industry, a farm, you know they 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 help you uh, fight off the predators, protect your chickens or your sheep or whatever your cattle. Um, or protect your property. Mm -hmm. So like when I was really, really young, uh, we used to stay in a landed property when I was a child. And my parents felt that they needed a guard dog, not a pet dog, but a guard dog, mm. you know? So my interaction with my, the very first dog that came into my life was really, you know, that dog lived outside it was chained up during the day and was only let out loose at night when, you know, when my dad or my parents came home from work, they locked up the main gate and then the dog was let loose to, to patrol the parameter, so to speak, you know. Right. Um, now, in today, uh, there are more parents in Asia now 
where the concept of a pet parent is growing that that awareness yeah. but it's not very huge you know um there's still you know some some pockets of 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 uh, uh pet owners who still buy there are two types one is the animals are working function Mm-hmm. So, like, if you live in a with land and a house, they usually got dogs. That that's the thing. Cats are considered strays mainly. They're not really pet cats, so they're 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 tolerated on your property more to control the rodents, you know, the rats yeah. or or what have you. And then you have one sort of pet parent that is because the economy in Asia is has been improving over the years, so it's quite materialistic. So the looking at animals has been, oh, uh, if I buy a pedigree dog or pedigree cat for several thousands of dollars, it's an indicator that I'm wealthy, I'm successful. It's yeah. not because I love the animal. It's a social status symbol. It's like buying a, a sports car, like a Mercedes or BMW, you know, and living, yeah. living in a nice address, for instance. You know, it's all it's all a social status. So in Asia, um, different parts of Asia, Singapore is one of them. You know, you have the Philippines, you've got China, especially um, Taiwan, where there are different rates of progression of the i the relationship of pet pets and 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 pet owners. You know, um, now we have more pet parents who are starting to be similar to North America. Because in North America, most pets today are considered as part of the family. There's no way, Jose, you're going to ever abandon them. You know, uh, if they're sick, you will spend money on, on vet bills and stuff. But over here, you know, if an animal starts to fall sick, most times, and you'd be surprised, even those with the, with the financial ability, they will look at a, a sick animal and say like, it'll cost too much. I don't want to spend that money. So they'll usually just dump the animal and then they'll buy a new one. They would rather spend thousands of dollars buying a new pedigree dog mm-hmm. and get rid of the old one. You know, it's, it's still a, a cultural thing. So over here, you know, pet food industry has had, I think, they've been very excited about Asia because it's a booming economy. So um, I don't know, you know, like a lot of pet stores are coming up, you know, um, big chain and small chain, and they are pushing for all these commercial products, the pet food commercial products. So, you know, how, what, how would you suggest, you know, to reach out to more pet parents? I mean, like, because you're an advocate over in North America, you know, like say someone like me, you know, like how would you, how would you advise uh, a aspiring pet parent who, who believes in the fresh food movement, you know, in a more holistic approach or, you know, integrative approach? Like how, how should we try to promote this awareness in this part of the world? Sure. I mean, I think this is not dissimilar to, you know, any number of, of social movements, you know, uh, insofar that, you know, everything starts with education, right? So, for example, what you're doing it, with your advocacy is, is a real brick in the wall, so to speak, right? You're, you're building a foundation for something 
um, that ultimately will have a, a network or scaled effect. Um, social media is, is, is a great platform from which to do that because uh, there, there's really not too many boundaries um, around that, right? You can reach somebody with your work anywhere in the world, not just in, in you know, your, your local country. So the, the educational component is probably the biggest piece of it because without the understanding, without the insight, without the knowledge, it's very difficult to uh, make choices, right? And, you know, pet parents, I think you mentioned early, earlier, oftentimes just reflexively adhere to whatever their veterinarian is uh, offering them. Or, you know, they're responding to whatever the last commercial they saw on television was or the, the product that popped up in their Facebook or, or Instagram feed. Um, and so overcoming that requires messaging uh, on a scale, perhaps not equivalent to, but sufficient to get a, an alternate message into their mind, which is, hey, have you really thought about what it is that you're feeding your animal? Um, and sometimes there can even be some cognitive dissonance there. For example, here in Southern California, I've seen the incredible phenomenon that people who themselves are very attentive to their level of fitness, the food that they eat, the amount of sleep they get every night, their visits to, you know, uh, to their physician. But yet the dog, you know, gets the, 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 the pet food from Costco. So they, they somehow don't apply the, the standards that they apply to themselves to their dog. That's something that I've seen in, in, in Southern California where there's a huge fitness and, and health community. Sometimes it doesn't quite make it uh, to the companion animal. But what's great about people like that is that once you share this information for them with them, it clicks right away because they're like, oh, right, I'm just not applying to my dog what I'm applying to myself. So leveraging an interest in health and wellness, leveraging an interest in fitness and helping people to see that, hey, the same things that you might take an interest for yourself apply almost identically uh, to, to your dog or your cat is a great way to start a conversation. Wow. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you. And remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.